Welcome to the RCSLT podcast. My name is Jacques Strauss. This is an IJLCD edition of the podcast in which we talk to authors about research published in the International Journal of Language and Communication Disorders. Today's paper is titled A Qualitative Systematic Review of Family Caregivers' Experiences of Artificial Nutrition and Hydration at Home, a Meta-Ethnography. I started, as always, by asking the authors to introduce themselves. Hi, uh, my name is Dominika Lisiecka. Uh, I'm a speech and language therapist and currently I work in the Department of Nursing in Monster Technological University, Terry Campus in Ireland. And um, I also do a small amount of clinical work uh, predominantly in the field of uh, dysphagia in acute settings. My name is Anya Kearns. I'm a speech and language therapist and I work in the School of Allied Health in the University of Limerick. I've worked clinically as a speech and language therapist with individuals um, with acquired communication uh, disorders and dysphagia. But I more recently have been working in the university, both in practice education and in lecturing. I wonder if... Um... I'll start with you, Dominica. If you could give us a, a sense of what's your paper about? Um, thank you. Our paper is about uh, the experiences of family caregivers who have a family member uh, receiving artificial nutrition or and hydration at home. So the paper is about um, a synthesis of their experiences. What is it like for them? to all of a sudden find themselves in the situation where their loved one is unable to eat and drink by mouth and how this experience affects their life. So we decided to research that topic um, for two reasons. The, the main one was the clinical reason that we knew that um, from our clinical experience that um, um, non-oral hydration, artificial nutrition and hydration um, has impact on the family members, not only on the person receiving it, but we weren't quite sure about what that impact is. Um, because in the clinical role, you don't necessarily have all these resources to provide to the family members, not as much as you would love to. We also looked in the literature and we were aware that there is a number of studies on the topic of uh, uh, experience of artificial nutrition and hydration uh, for the family carers. And the studies were reporting both positive and negative uh, consequences. So we just set out to synthesize it, to look at the literature in a very comprehensive way um, without any time limits and see what's out there. And basically to understand that experience more to inform clinical practice and how we support family members of people receiving artificial nutrition and hydration. Um, before we go too far, I wonder, Anya, if you could just tell our listeners, um, some of whom may know a lot about it, some who may not, what exactly we mean by artificial nutrition and hydration, why it may be needed, and um, the types. Um, so it's quite an umbrella term that we're using there in terms of artif artificial nutrition and hydration. Um, and 
in our paper, what we're referring to um, is across a, a variety of different um, methods of artificial nutrition and hydration. We know that we can have enteral nutrition um, and also parenteral nutrition. And enteral nutrition is essentially where there is a feeding tube that goes into the stomach or into the bowel, but it bypasses the mouth um, and, and the pharynx. Um, and it means that you've got a functioning um, gastrointestinal tract. We also looked at, um, at parenteral nutrition as well, and that's introduced to bypass the gastrointestinal tract. So uh, where that might not actually be functioning for someone and that might be supplemental to enteral nutrition as well. So there's a variety of different things that can happen. Um, and so one of the most um, common types that we might see as speech and language therapists is maybe somebody who also has a gastrostomy tube. And that might be uh, part of their um, artificial nutrition and hydration. Again, going back to what Dominica said, that really prompted us because we're meeting patients who um, are receiving artificial nutrition and hydration for a variety of different reasons. Um, so it could be because they're unable to swallow because of a neurological illness, maybe something like motor neuron disease, multiple sclerosis, um, or indeed it could be uh, because of cancer. There's a, a number of different reasons. So, Anya, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit more about, you know, the, the studies that you looked at. Um, you know, did they all have the same sort of methodology? How did you choose the papers? You know, um, how did you go about doing the research, I guess? So, obviously, uh, we, we needed to really consider the question that we were planning on answering and having that synthesis of the existing literature um, and choosing a framework that was going to help us to answer that question. And myself and Dominica have experience of using a similar methodology in a previous paper where we explored the experience, the lived experience of um, people who were living with artificial nutrition and hydration who had um, progressive neurological illnesses. So we, we used a particular methodology for that called meta-ethnography, and we felt that that was really, really appropriate for this question as well. Could you explain to us what that is? Okay, so um, very, very briefly, meta-ethnography is one of the ways of doing a qualitative synthesis of evidence. So when you are interested in uh, looking across different uh, uh, qualitative data sets, so you're interested to investigate experience and synthesizes, you can use different frameworks. And meta-ethnography is simply one of them. And the feature of meta-ethnography that um, I suppose attracted me and Onya to use it, aside from methodological uh, suitability, was the fact that um, the guidelines of conducting meta-ethnography are quite uh, uh, well um, determined and were updated in 2019. And also the fact that as part of uh, your working with the data, you are expected to produce a line of argument synthesis, which basically means that on top of synthesizing all the studies, you are creating that uh, paragraph, uh, summarizing what's happening and putting your own, your own understanding and interpretation. So, you know, you start working very closely with the data and then you progress towards uh, through first, second and third order teams. So you are allowed to make interpretations, which for us was very, very important. So it's a step further from just synthesizing what's, what's in, in the papers. Right. So if I understand you correctly, you're saying is we, we, have, we have a methodology for selecting appropriate papers, 
we go through all those papers and analyze them, and then we potentially draw new conclusions and new understandings from the coming together of all these papers. Yes. Um, which then begins to bring us to the $64,000 question. Can you begin to give us a sense of what you found? Um, well, we started with um, the included studies. We had 22 studies that look at family caregiver experience. Um, and so within those 22 studies, they're actually published over a 30-year um, period. Um, and the participants, the number of participants within the studies can vary between three up to 84 participants. Um, and the ages of those participants were between 18 and 94 years of age. And I do feel it's important to highlight that in terms of a 94 year old caring for somebody. But that is the spectrum that we were seeing. And what we saw, not all of the studies actually reported on the gender of the family caregiver, but those that did, and that was 16 studies, the majority of caregivers were female, so it was 75%. In the studies, we included um, the kind of um, the, the underlying conditions were primarily cancer or neurological conditions such as motion neuron disease. Uh, we also have a study in there which was short bowel syndrome, intestinal failure, where um, artificial nutrition and hydration was required and a family caregiver was um, involved in the study. They're across a number of countries, so from the UK, the USA, Sweden, Canada, Brazil, Singapore, Japan, China, Turkey and Italy. Um, and I think that is interesting as well because one of the things that we kind of just briefly touched on as we were reading through is like, you know, the relationship of food, the concept of food, food as a cultural kind of activity, uh, that is something that we can't look away from. Although in our studies, this is probably only touched on in, in, in some of the studies there, but I think it's something that we, we felt was um, a factor we need to take into consideration. And so that's kind of the, the, the studies that we included. And then we took that data. So we looked at it from the, the um, first order, and that would be the, the participants in the studies, the quotes that they may have given, the information that they may have provided. And then the second order, so that would be the authors of those studies. What did they actually um, determine as the kind of key findings? And we brought them to a third level, to a third order, where we actually synthesize that information and we developed two themes. It's relatively easy to determine the first and second order data but when you start to disconnecting a little bit from it and make your own uh, synthesis and a bit of interpretation there as well I think you know it's, it's a challenge because you want to make sure that whatever um, whatever findings you are publishing or, or uh, um, concluding there have to be coming from, from the papers. So they have to be comprehensive enough and they have to be representative of, of the literature. So we, we determined two um, themes. The first one was um, the overall experience, I suppose, of, of uh, how it was for the carers uh, to um, experience artificial nutrition and hydration at home. And we called it Sink or Swim, um, being thrown in at a deep end and that team basically talks about um, uh, the impact the profound impact of uh, artificial nutrition and hydration on family caregivers and um, 
particularly at the start, the commencement of this uh, way of eating and drinking was a very difficult time. It was a steep learning curve for them. They were expected to learn, expected to take on all the duties associated with managing artificial nutrition and hydration at home. They had to reorganize their lives. All of the sudden, this is the new routine, uh, this is the new regime, and um, everything else had to be everything else had to be um, organized around it. There was a lot of emotional impact, obviously, uh, in terms of uh, being uncertain and insecure and not knowing am I doing things right am I on the right track is it uh, um, is it really uh, the right way of managing the, the the tube feeding but also we we've noticed in the papers that uh, in time um, there were more and more positive experiences and there was this kind of sense of pride sense of new purpose so if you imagine um, having a loved one which a neurodegenerative condition, all of a sudden the presence of artificial nutrition and hydration means that maybe there is no treatment for the illness, but there is something I can do at home to manage mealtimes that were getting very stressful, or maybe to reduce the anxiety related to uh, uh, the fear of talking. So um, that kind of being... Uh, thrown in at the deep end reflect the very start of the journey that emerging the studies as a particularly hard uh, period in the caregiver's life and then the second theme then was professional support as a bedrock and just to make it clear we didn't look for those things we didn't know what was we, we employed a very inductive approach we didn't know what was going to be in those 22 studies and uh, the professional support emerged as really, really important. And um, the carers and the authors of the 22 studies made a really important and, and strong point around how appropriate professional support can make the whole experience uh, better for the caregivers. So um, the need for providing holistic support, um, the fact that psychological uh, support, for example, uh, was not viewed as beneficial if it wasn't provided together with clinical support. So that coordination of the services for uh, caregivers was very important. Um, there was also conflict, a uh, conflict that um, emerged in relation to um, continuation of oral intake. So for example, um, getting a professional advice not to continue on the oral intake because it's not safe where we knew from the papers, from the literature, that continuation of even tiny amount of oral intake had a profound positive impact on the overall experience, because that meant that the person receiving artificial nutrition and hydration could participate to some extent, even small, uh, during meals, be it at home or outside. So it was very, very important. And yet hearing from professionals, well, you know, that's not safe, you shouldn't do that, had the massive consequences on the uh, on the overall experience. Um, the the professional support, as in, um, should be understood under that theme as a continuum of support. So, needs to be provided at this at the start or before the start at the decision making process. Decision making is extremely challenging or can be extremely challenging, and it affects family caregivers as well as the person who is due to receive uh, this way of eating and drinking. And it shouldn't continue throughout. So that's kind of the two themes. One, 
uh, highlighting the, the impact, especially at the start of artificial nutritional hydration. So the sink or swim, you have to cope with this. This is the new reality and you have to reorganize your life and, and manage. And the second thing around the importance and, and huge importance of professional support to make this whole experience more positive for family or caregivers. What came up a lot in the discussion was the need to balance the clinician's views with the patient's views. So, though it may be safer to use ANNH, one does need to balance this with what the patient wants and consider quality of life needs as well. No, it's just, when I hear this clinician's view, I respect that completely. But I just want to flip it, you know, forget clinician's view, look into the person's view in front of you. Because in some regard, that's, Sometimes it's not that relevant, really, because we, we are there to provide a service for a person. And if that's what the person wants to do, if you consider the context of illness and the lived experience and perhaps being near end of life and, you know, the, the, um, uh, the whole issue of, um, you know, person not being compliant with what clinicians want to do, we really want to flip it and, and say, well, you know, the clinician may not be compliant with what the, what the person wants. And we haven't used the term kind of person-centered care, but like it really is about person-centered care, but not just for the person who is experiencing living with um, artificial nutrition hydration, but they are part of a family unit in many cases. And really that the family needs to be considered as a member of that team as well, or that, that the significant caregiver is, is considered a member of that team as well. I think that's the key kind of philosophy for providing support. Also not to presume that every person is able to become a, um, a family caregiver providing or looking after managing artificial nutrition and hydration. It cannot, you cannot, we cannot presume that, that because you, know, you have a spouse who potentially could do it that that person will actually be able to do it, you know. So that emerged from the studies that um, it's um, it was it was not a choice. They were never asked. Some participants were never asked if this is something they feel ready to do or they would like to even do. So we have to remember there could be different dynamics at home, and um, sometimes be that this is how the service is being provided, or the only way the service is going to be provided is by you doing this. Uh, this kind of lack of lack of choice emerged, and particularly um. As Onya was saying, this being person-centered and being integrated in how you provide the service, being flexible, um, and also particularly for speech and language therapy, where do we have that role? Is that you know we we are the people, we are we are the professionals who can support the continuation of that oral diet, both for the caregiver, family caregiver, to help uh, uh, how to. Um, make this diet, I suppose, the most uh, safe or, you know, how to prepare food to, uh, um, um, for, for the person with, let's say, swallowing difficulties. So that our role doesn't finish because the person is receiving now artificial nutrition and hydration. And really what Onya, how Onya expressed the, the, uh, the core of what people wanted or what emerged around the professional support um, that is expressed all in the line of uh, argument synthesis in our study. And just to say that it's a very interesting process and one that attracted us to meta-ethnography specifically. So it's not only a summary of what's emerged across the studies. We have to make sense from it. And how myself and Onya are going to make sense 
if we've never experienced artificial nutrition and hydration, really. So at that point, we uh, were working in collaboration with a family caregiver who who was currently, uh, at the time, um, uh, looking after her husband, who was receiving artificial nutrition and hydration. And we've discussed that essence of the line of argument synthesis uh, with Sheila, uh, who um, almost validated her her, uh, experience um, against the findings of the study. So we briefed So in terms of recommendations, it's clear that we really need a multidisciplinary team that can provide support to the patient and the caregivers as decisions about ANNH are being made. Also, that support needs to be ongoing and we need to take into consideration the needs of the patient, but also the caregivers. Very importantly, the role of the speech and language therapist does not end when we start artificial nutrition and hydration. If we can continue even a small amount of oral intake with SLT support, it can have tremendous benefits. Finally, we discussed what further research was needed. A number of the studies that are included in the review, they list out potential areas for research and they make suggestions. And they're quite varied. There's no consensus across the studies. What we're seeing in earlier studies, uh, so studies from the 1990s have suggested looking at concepts around psychological distress in families, looking maybe at um, interventions to support self-care, family adaptations, as well as looking at the impact on um, the individuals, their carers and the person receiving artificial nutrition and hydration, particularly in relation to body image and um, the impact on um, their sexual lives um, in terms of where the um, carer is the spouse um, and the potential impact there. And it moves along as well to investigating the types of supports that individuals might need when they are caring for somebody with artificial nutrition and hydration, considering things like um, the uh, impact of uh, peer feedback, uh, peer um, support groups, as well as looking at quality of life and the burden for family caregivers. And then also we have a study that's uh, suggesting looking at the quantity of oral intake and how that might have an impact on the care burden for the the family caregiver. So there's really no consensus, but there are a variety of areas uh, that are being suggested. And we feel that uh, there are some clear directions going forward, but we need to consider further research Uh, in the context that the individuals are in. So looking at the context specific um, uh, realization of that research. So considering cultural, um, ethnic, gender, but also thinking about the the service and the setting that they're in, the, the, the family unit and the dynamics that might be there. A very big thank you to Dominica and Anya for their time. As always, see the show notes for links to articles and other resources that may be of interest. Until next time, keep well.